Well, Christmas is finally here, and uh, I thought our boys, you know, they're 16 and 18, and I thought maybe we'd sleep in a bit uh, at this point, but no, 6.30, I was the last one up. <laughs> they came in ready, ready to go. Uh, yeah, it's a great time of year, full of excitement and anticipation, gatherings and gifts and food and caroling. It's a special time. It's a sacred time, and it can be a different kind of time that we enter, especially when we, we gather together like this, and we, we reconnect with something that's happened long ago in the past, and we encounter it again fresh in the present to behold its meaning and to receive its grace again and again and again. So last night we went back to Bethlehem <clears throat> to behold our Lord in the manger, and we heard the same gospel reading uh, last night because we have more to behold <laughs> and receive from it again and again. And we learned how this manger was a sign, we heard. The angel said, this is a sign to you, which is a big deal in the Bible, uh, if you weren't here. Signs tell us something important is happening in the story, something significant. And this sign is also typically a symbol of something great. It holds a lot of meaning for us. We're meant to consider and behold and receive. So we looked at how the manger tells us Jesus is a different kind of king, as our children were telling us, right? How he, uh, <clears throat> he's this humble king. He's, uh, this manger is symbolizing for us the humble descent of Jesus for us, who comes to, to descend into our world, into our darkness and our desperation to be with us and to deliver us from every lack and oppression and evil within and without. This morning we're going to look at the surprising and most sacred gift God offers us in this descent, in this sign, in this manger. Our Old Testament reading ended with this. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. It's worth thinking about for a while. Now, this is, uh, this is right at the beginning of Isaiah, and this is an indictment, a pretty big diss on Israel, on the people of God. The Yankee, or it's the Yankee. <laughs> that would be easy to put them together. I don't have to say ox and donkey. But the ox and the donkey, they're not the, the brightest animals on the block, right? <laughs> but even they know better at this moment than the people of God. That's a pretty big diss. So the ox, it knows its owner. And how does an ox know its owner? Well, it knows it especially when it's working in the field. It knows the owner's directions and how to respond to that as it's working in the field. The donkey knows its master's manger. That is, it knows where its master gives it food and nourishment. It knows where to go 
every time. But the people of God did not know their Lord. They did not know his direction in their life and work from Monday to Friday. The people of God did not know their master's manger, where he fed and nourished and satisfied them with his word, most especially. They did not understand, as you read the rest of Isaiah. When Jesus was born, how many understood the sign of the manger? How many and who was it? It'd be worthwhile just looking at who it was that understood and came to the manger. Who came first? Who came second? We don't even have time to go there. But today, how many understood and received what God was showing them in this divine descent? How many understood and honored that and followed that way? And how many understood and received what God was offering them in this sign, in this manger? So what is a manger? Some children maybe who were there here last night. What is a manger? Ayala, what's a manger? It's where it gets to eat, right. It's where they put the food for the animals so that they can eat, right? So the animal can get nourished and filled and fed. <clears throat> so that should be a major clue as to the meaning of this sign, right, that we maybe look over. A manger is a clue that God, what God is offering here is some kind of food and nourishment to satisfy us. And what is it? What's God offering us here? Well, in one way, it's the same thing he's always offered his people, the people of Israel. He's offering them his word. But now, it's his word made flesh. The bread of life. So last night we, see, we saw how, just as the manger expressed in symbol what Paul expressed with words in his letter to the Philippians, right, how the humble descent of Jesus from, from heaven to the earth to the realm of the dead. So the, the manger also expresses in symbol what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, where he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. They will be satisfied. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Faith is always how we behold and receive Christ, whether it's in the scriptures or whether it's at the table. We come with faith in our hearts to receive and feed on him. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And this bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. That is what the manger is telling us symbolically. Jesus is the bread of life, the living bread of heaven, the bread of communion for the life of the world. The Orthodox get this too. So we looked last night at or we talked about how in their icons of the manger, 
that first, many times it can look also like a coffin. And his swaddling clothes can look like grave clothes, reminding us of where the, be the beginning of this humble descent ends. They get that. Well, they also get something else. They get this feeding imagery. So in the icons, the manger can also look like the Ark of the Covenant. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was Aaron's rod. It was the, the stone tablets of the law, the Word made flesh, and also the golden pot of manna the heavenly bread that God fed the people of Israel in the wilderness. That's kept in the ark. That's Jesus. The Orthodox understand this meaning of the manger, how Jesus is this bread in the wilderness. He's our daily bread. He's the living bread from heaven being offered to us in the manger. This is also the bigger context of Luke, if you pay attention to what Luke is trying to tell us about Jesus in the manger. At the beginning of Luke, we're told Jesus is born where? Where's Jesus born? Looking for the kids. <laughs> Bethlehem. That's right. Do you know what Bethlehem means? The house of bread. The story of Jesus in Luke starts with Jesus being born in the house of bread in a manger. Couldn't be more obvious <laughs> in many ways. I mean, if you knew the language, knew the Greek. There's all the meal imagery we could go through in all of Luke. But of course, we know where it finishes with Jesus taking the loaf and giving thanks and breaking it and saying, this bread is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then where does the Gospel of Luke end? Right? With Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And how is he known? He's known to them in the breaking of bread. The manger, again, is a sign that Jesus to us is to us the bread of life. The bread of heaven. The bread of communion. You know, manger is related to the word, the French word, manger, to eat. And so when the priest puts the food into his people's hands, he says, prenez, manger, take, eat. <laughs> I want to say that now from now on. <laughs> I may just do that this morning. We'll see when it's time. But he is the true desire of the nations. This manger, in this manger, in these scriptures, at this table, in this cup, this is where the Father fills us and nourishes us and satisfies us with the person and the teaching, of course, and the presence of our Lord. He's the living bread that satisfies and he's the living bread, therefore, that's going to save us from the mania of consumerism that surrounds Christmas of all seasons. People have not yet learned to savor the Savior in that mania. And how appropriate that this, this day is a feast day, right? In the church calendar, it's the feast of the nativity. 
And now appropriate, there is going to be a feast afterwards in here. You should see the table all laid out. Uh, so if you have nowhere to go, you now do have somewhere to go. <laughs> Join us and eat with us. But it's a day when now millions and millions uh, join to celebrate this, this day, this season, this feast, and this one who is true heavenly food. But think now of how this started, this feast started. It didn't start in a nice, cozy, decorated room with a fireplace and stockings and ham and eggnog and Handel's Messiah in the background. Nope. It started where? At a rocky stone manger. We're actually we're, we're talking about maybe making a stone one for next year. Those are, those are harder to make <laughs> than a wooden one. That's why we have a wooden one. But the original manger was rocky, maybe carved out of stone, cold, dirty from slobber from the animals probably. It started there with just a few in the dark of night. Just Mary and Joseph were the ones at the beginning. But then it starts to grow in number and in joy. Presumably the animals would eventually come near because they knew their master's manger, their maker's manger. As did the shepherds who came. They knew their master's manger. And after feeding on them, after feeding on him in their hearts, by faith, with thanksgiving, they went away satisfied, full of joy, praising God. Two years later, the Magi came. You know, in our nativity scenes, they're all together. Lots of imagination going on in our <laughs> nativity scenes, which is, which is still fun and, and great. We don't have to get all critical about that. But uh, they probably came a few years later. And they came and joined the feast. And they got filled with joy in it all. And then later, the disciples, years later, would join the table. And then others called tax collectors and sinners would come. And the joy was increasing so much, people started thinking, man, they're a little too happy. They're eating a little too much. And they started calling Jesus a glutton and a drunkard because you're not that happy unless you've had a little too much to drink. And then all kinds were invited, the lame and the sick. Also the well-to-do and the educated and the religious leaders were invited too. And not just the Jews, but also all nations. And the numbers grew and increased. And a few centuries later that would bring 100,000 troops out of the trenches of World War I. Not to kill each other, but to join the feast with the Prince of Peace. To play soccer together. <laughs> to sing Christmas carols. That's the power of this feast. Of the one who is true food. A feast that millions and billions now are starting to learn about and enjoy. And on that final day, which of course is not the final, it's just the beginning of a new day. But on that day, there's going to be multitudes that no one can count from every nation, from every people, from every language. And they're going to be shouting with shouts of joy, roaring now with joy, it says in Revelation. Because now every darkness will have been dispelled by the light from the Lamb, from His face. And everyone with trusting hearts will have come to the table, to the feast, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That all started at the manger. 
in the dark with just a few, but started to grow. Why? Because when people were starting to taste and see that the Lord is good, he's true food. He is the bread of life, the living bread of heaven. I'm going to finish with, a, with some personal testimony here, and then finally a poem, as I usually do. Um, but I'm going to talk a bit about how the Lord has satisfied my hunger. And I'm going to give a little pre-testimony in how this came about this past week. So last Thursday, I was heading up to our office. It's on the fourth floor in this building in, in Back Bay. And I was trying to get on time for this Zoom meeting I was going to have with my spiritual director, which is someone you meet with who's trying to ask you, what's God doing in your life? What do you sense him saying to you? Well, on the way up, I meet with uh, JT on the first floor. So he sits at the front desk of this... Uh, this program called the, the Victory Program. And he, uh, he welcomes people. This is a program that helps people with HIV. And JT, which stands for Just Terrific, by the way, if you didn't know, he is just terrific. Uh, and he's been through a lot, JT. He's, uh, he's been in gangs before. He's been in prison. He's been uh, hooked on crack. And he's been shot and stabbed. But God saved him <laughs> and delivered him from all of that. And now he's a bright light in that welcoming space, if you meet JT at the front desk. Well, we talk a lot, um, all the time, and we encourage each other, we've prayed with each other. Well, this morning, as I was coming to the office and I'm on my way up, he had, he had some words for me, some good words. And he's like, Dave, you know what? Your people don't just need your teaching. They need your testimony. And it was like Jesus was talking right through him directly to me. Um, he said a whole bunch of other things, too. I won't be able to get into. But it was like, whoa, Jesus is talking to me through JT right now. And so I went right from there in my spiritual direction. And then when it came to share, what do you sense God saying to you <laughs> these days? I had a lot to talk about and respond to. So that's why I'm going to give a little testimony of how Jesus has been the bread of life to me in the manger. So when I've been desperate, famished for relief from the weight of my sin and guilt and shame, nothing has brought me any lasting relief like the cross and the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God slain for us. Nothing. No human words. When I was at my lowest about 30 years ago, feeling crushed and desperate, no human words meant anything to me. No one could encourage me or console me except the cross, except Christ crucified. That's true 20 or 30 years ago, and it's been true every year since because my battle is not yet done. JT told me, I need to tell you, I still struggle with sin. <laughs> it's true. I still struggle with sin. I need to share that more with all of you. My hunger for a purpose and a way for adventure, that was really strong, especially in my teen years, and I tried to find, to satisfy that with all kind of extreme and risky and stupid behavior. Um, but nothing has satisfied that hunger. Nothing has satisfied than more than his way, his challenging, rewarding, his radical way of welcome. 
If I'm bored, I know I have wandered from his way, because his way is not boring. It just means I'm not following it. I'm not risking enough. My desire for connection and community and communion that I've tried to find many times in just getting people to like me <laughs> in all kinds of silly ways. That has only ever been satisfied in the communion of his Holy Spirit, in communion with the Lamb in the manger and with his people. And no words have ever satisfied me more than his words. And I've read a lot of good words, read a lot of books, <laughs> really good books, but none has satisfied me like his words have. I have truly found them to be spirit and life. And sometimes they are hard, and I get those people who walk away because there's some hard things in the words of Jesus. But I'm with those disciples when they said, where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And now I behold Jesus and receive from him on every page of the Bible. And that's good food. And no meal has ever satisfied me more than this meal. And I've had a lot of good meals in my life. I like to eat good food. But no meal is better than this meal. That's what drew me to the Anglican way of worship. That's what was drawing me to the table more and more. When, hey, you know, the sermon maybe is not going to be so great sometimes. You know, in this church, that's, you know, once in a long time. <laughs> but I know, no matter how good or bad the sermon is, I'm coming to the table. I'm going to see grace upon grace. Because this Jesus is full of grace. He never runs out. There's always more. Every week. The table, it reorients me. It nourishes me. It deepens my connection with the Lord and with all of you every time. I've never had a, one of those Aquinas moments, if you know his story, this big theologian from the past, when this time he took communion near, near the end of his life, and it was so powerful, it's such an experience of God's grace, he looked back on all his massive and brilliant writings and was like, straw. I haven't had a moment like that in communion. I, I would welcome it. I'm ready for it. But for me, it's been more subtle. It's more, been more like a steady stream of grace into my life. It's sometimes like, or many times like a little mini Christmas every Sunday, right? Where Jesus comes to me in the form of the humble bread. Like he came to us in the humble form of a baby in a feeding trough. Now, I don't believe in transubstantiation, if you know that kind of terminology. If you don't, don't worry about it. But, um, but with other Anglicans and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and a lot of others, I believe in what's called the real presence in communion. That not just the memory of Jesus is being shared with us in the bread and the wine. I believe that. I hold on to that. I think that's what's happening as well. But I believe that somehow also the real presence of Jesus is somehow being shared with me in the Spirit through the bread and the wine. And not just doctrinally, but experientially in my life. Now don't worry, you don't, you don't have to believe in the, in the real presence to share this table 
with all of us here. All baptized believers, regardless of your understanding or your conviction on the table, uh, are welcome. So don't worry about that. But you might be changing your mind over time. Just be open to it. <laughs> the more you receive this table. And I'm going to finish with this poem by John Betjeman, who was an English poet, writer, broadcaster. He was the poet laureate from 1972 until his death. And this one's called Christmas. And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea become a child on earth for me? And is it true? For if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around these tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and inexpensive scent and hideous tie, so kindly meant. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple shaking bells can with this single truth compare that God was a man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Amen.